Hey, let's pray together. Would you bow your heads with me? Father in heaven, your love truly is great. Greater than anything we could ever capture, greater than anything we could ever put to words, and yet it compels us this morning, Father. It compels us to gather together, compels us to sing, compels us to sit and, and to long for your word. Father, I pray that these next few moments would be more than just a message, more than just a sermon. Father, that I would get out of the way and that all of us could sit at your feet and be overwhelmed by your presence and your love. That it could truly be the vision that we need that could guide our hearts. Father, that it would let us erupt in praise as we sing that the payment of our debt has been paid in full. Father, we lift you high today. Father, we are here for you. And so we ask now that your spirit your presence would awaken us and stir us according to this pleasing, holy, and precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Man, it's so good to see you all this, this wonderful Sunday morning. It's a big day in the Smith household, all right? Today is Annabelle's birthday, all right? And so she has turned six years old, and we've been in full party mode. In fact, we celebrated her birthday yesterday. We kind of had the party yesterday. And here's the thing. I, I think we're kind of getting to know each other at this point. I've been here about a year and a half now, and so uh, I think you guys are aware of some of these things. But just in case uh, you've missed this, or if I failed to mention it last year, uh, birthday parties in the Smith household are kind of a big deal, all right? Like, we, we go a little overboard. Now, we're not so crazy that they need to make a reality TV show out of what we do, but it's definitely... You know, we, we go for it, okay? Now, here's the thing. The reason is, is because when, when you look at a marriage, it really is a merging of families. And a lot of times when those families merge, we tend to highlight the differences between the two, and that's where you need to find compromise and all these different things to make things work, kind of form your own new path. But, but there are also similarities. And when those similarities, like, align, and you both love, well, then, like, the impact is accentuated and it's exponential. And so Jennifer's family made a big deal out of birthdays. My family made a big deal out of birthdays, so you put us together and throw in Pinterest, and it's like all, you know, no, who knows what's going to happen, right? It's just, it's just who knows how it's going to unfold. And so we, we put a lot of effort into birthdays, and as a result, our kids have a tendency to anticipate it. There's kind of this build-up section, right? There's kind of season of, of a countdown, and Annabelle in particular really gravitates toward the countdown because Annabelle is a planner, all right? She loves to plan. In fact, her three favorite questions are, what are we doing today? What are we doing tomorrow? What are we doing the day after that? Right? Those, those three questions get asked all the time in our house, and, and it truly is because she wants to know what's coming up, and she'll plan. And a lot of times, I'll watch her, because as she's asking, she's waiting to hear something that she's really looking forward to, and it, with each question, she's counting. So she can figure out how many more days until that thing that I want to have happen is going to happen. So it was a couple months ago when she started asking about her birthday. And it's somewhere around like the day 33 mark. It I kind of really initiated an, an official countdown to where for almost every day for the last month, whether it was in the morning or in the afternoon at some point, she would come up to either Jennifer or myself and say, 32 more days till my birthday. You know, and she's just ready for it and counting down towards it. And so it's, it's a big deal in our family, and because of this countdown, uh, because of the effort that we put into it, there's a lot of preparation that goes into making these parties 
work, okay? And this was kind of a, a girly party, obviously. She really wanted to do things related to things that she loved. And so the time it took for us to prepare kind of took us through different phases. And this is normal for most birthday parties. Phase one is decide on a theme, okay? And, and it could be any theme. This year, Annabelle wanted to have a comfy party, okay? So we, we invited people to show up in their pajamas, right? And it was just to be low-key, chill inside the house and have a little comfy party, right? Now, there was sprinkling a little bit of Paw Patrol and uh, stuffed animals, and that was your theme. And so once you have your theme established, that leads to invitations, okay? So we got the invitations made. Phase two is gifts, and, and, and that's when Annabelle starts kind of listing out some things that she would like to have, and she has a list going. And so mom and dad begin to do the research and kind of figure things out. But ultimately, it kind of has to be this coordinated attack, right? It's like this plan of attack with all the grandparents, almost like we're preparing for battle. We're like, okay, you two get the Legos. You two over here get the Hatchimal. We'll go down the middle, and we'll get all this other stuff, you know? And you're just preparing to take on all the gifts. Phase three is the stations, right? Because you invite all these kids over to your house, you got to have something for them to do. And so yesterday we had make your own bath bombs, uh, make your own pillowcase or sleeping bags for your stuffed animal. It was out of pillowcases. Uh, we had paint your nails, and then we had a comfy fort where you could just go in and lay down and relax. And I'm not going to lie, once I built that thing, I was like, where has this been all my life? Like, I don't think it's coming down. Like, I'm pretty sure we're going to leave that thing up. So you have stations, and then you have uh, the menu, you have food, you have decorations, got to go by the, uh, the banner, got to get the crepe paper. And then you get to the day of, and you have all the logistics, running errands, cooking, preparing. We always tend to have to rearrange furniture in our house to, like, position things where they need to go. So it is a lot of work, a lot of preparation to get ready for this party. So much so that Jennifer and I have decided that we have ruined our kids in some form or fashion, right? They're either going to be so obsessed with birthdays when they get older, we just need to go ahead and write the apology note to their future spouse, or they're going to get so overwhelmed that they're just going to give up on birthdays altogether and be like, I just need a cupcake. Like, don't do anything for me anymore. And so we, we sense that. The good thing is that our children are very thoughtful. They're very mindful. They're very sincere and sensitive. And so yesterday, as we were preparing, uh, Jennifer was working in the kitchen, and Annabelle went in there and said, well, mom, you don't need to do all this stuff. It's not like I'm the queen of the world. Now, I don't know which one of y'all told her that, all right? But we're going to have words, okay? Because in my book, she is, okay? And so, so anyway, it was a lot of fun, a lot of preparation. It was a great party. We had a great time. And I was thinking through all the work that went into it to be prepared and get ready and, and how much effort it does take in life to prepare ourselves for things, right? To get ready for certain events or situations. In fact, the word ready is defined to be completely prepared, be, to be completely prepared or in fit condition for immediate use, right? That, that's the definition of to being ready, right? Let me say it again. To be completely prepared or in fit condition for immediate action or use. And that's what I want us to talk about today is what does it mean for us to be ready, right? That to me is gonna be kind of this this dominant theme that we see in the conclusion of chapter two today. And I want us to, to think through, in particular, through that lens of God using us. What does it mean for us, when God speaks to us, to be completely prepared, to be in fit condition, to be immediately used for his purpose and his plan? That's, that's the hope for us as we navigate through this last part of Jonah chapter two. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. And as we've said over the last few weeks, this is a very unique chapter in the story of Jonah, right? It, it disrupts the narrative. This is no longer just the story. This is an insight to Jonah's heart and in his mind. And it gives us this prayer of thanksgiving. 
which in and of itself is remarkable because it is a prayer of thanksgiving that's being offered inside a fish, right? But, but we get a chance to see how Jonah is being transformed through all that God has done. And so I wanna read to you this prayer in its entirety. So we're gonna start in verse two, but our, our focal verses this morning are gonna be eight, nine, and 10, okay? So start with me in verse two, and we'll read it in its entirety. It says, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me, seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down, the earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Here's our verses. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Okay, so many things that I want us to to work through in those verses today. But I actually want to start with verse 10. I want to start there, and then we're going to back up and work our way through verses 8 and 9, okay? So verse 10, as you heard Trisha say during the children's sermon, things have changed right in this story. The, the, the Lord commands the fish, and, and he vomits Jonah out onto dry land, which is just a remarkable verse in and of itself. But, but what you have there is, again, an opportunity, if we wanted to take and speak to God's sovereignty, to seek about his control over creation. But more than that, because we've already talked about that, I, I want to highlight this this pivotal shift in this story, right? This, this divine rescue, this unexpected mercy seems to be complete, right? The three days, the three nights, this journey into the belly of the fish, the storm, it is all finally over, right? We've seen the Lord chase Jonah down in his disobedience, in his rebellion. We've all had those moments. We've talked about it extensively in chapters one and two, these storms in life, the rebellion that we have where we constantly run away from the Lord, it is finally over. And you read verse 10, and it's almost as if the Lord says, now you're ready. Let's try this again. Puts him back on dry ground, puts him back in a position to fulfill what God first called him to do. It's this, it's just like this reset button, right? It's like God took him through all those storms just so that he can say, now you're ready. It's a significant change and transition. And so the question for us this morning is that what, what led God to do that? What, what changed in Jonah to make him feel ready? Right? And that's what I want us to discuss. We're going to talk about what does it mean to be ready? What does it mean to be prepared for the Lord? What does it mean to have a ready heart? Now, before I get into those details, there are two disclaimers that I want to make about this sort of discussion this morning, okay? But here's the first thing. God can and will use anyone. So when we talk about readiness, he can and will use anyone, right? Now, we saw that with Jonah himself in the first chapter. Even, excuse me, even in Jonah's disobedience, God still used him, right? Look at the sailors, Right? Jonah's running away from the Lord, he's being disobedient, but God uses that to encounter these sailors, these polytheistic sailors, who we saw at the end of chapter one, have a conversion experience and actually devote their lives in worship to Yahweh. So even in Jonah's disobedience, God used him. 
So, so God can and will use anyone. In fact, I was uh, laughing about this the other day. I was talking to Paul and Sharon Greitz, and we were reflecting on the story of Balaam in Numbers 22, Balaam and his donkey, where God uses a donkey to reveal his word. And as we were chatting that day, if God can use a donkey, he can use you. Right? He can use anyone, and that's a great reminder of it. Right? And so when we talk about being ready, this is not a discussion that says, like, are you smart enough? Are you gifted enough? Are you spiritually mature enough? Do you have the right skill set? Do you have the right equipping? No. It's that phrase. I don't, I don't know who to attribute the quote to, but it's God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. Right? It's this idea that he can use any of us. He will use any of us. It's not about our abilities. It's about our readiness to be used. It's a, it's a posture. It's a mindset. Think of it this way. When I was younger, I had numerous chores that I was asked to do. But probably the one that was the most uh, focused on was clean your room. Right? And I remember like struggling with the rationale and the logic sometimes when I was asked to clean my room because I was like, it's my room. Like, why do I need to clean it? Didn't have the whole concept of like home ownership, you know, at that point in my life and how I, I was really able to stay there. Um, but I, that's how I felt. My mom would be like, well, you know, we've got people coming over. Like, I don't want them to see a messy room. And I'd be like, shut the door. You know, I was real joy to deal with in those days, y'all. I was really great. And so I really struggled with that. And so I was resistant. Well, now as a parent who's also trying to teach hard work and, and chores to my children, you can see the difference between a resistant heart Right? And one that is, that is going to be ready. Right? One that is going to be ready to respond that says, yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. And does it. That's the sort of readiness that we're after. Right? We want to be, be ready to respond to what God has in store for us. So let me just be very clear for a moment. For every single person that's in here, if there is any voice in your heart, in your soul, in your mind that tells you God can't use you, because you're not equipped enough, you're not spiritually mature enough, or a voice that says God won't use you because his plans don't consider you, he's forgotten you, or this idea that God doesn't want to use you because you're too broken or because you're too sinful, because you're too rebellious. If there's any voice inside of your heart or your head that tells you that God can't, won't, or doesn't want to, kill it. It's not true. He does want to, he can use you, and he will use you. We must be ready. And that's what we're going to try to, to dive into today. Now, the second disclaimer on this discussion is that God is at work. I've told you all this numerous times since I first got here. God is at work. This is more than just some ancient story we're reading. You go back to Colossians chapter 1. This gospel is bearing fruit all over the world. And I stand before you as a former missions pastor who's been to numerous countries, numerous cultures. And I tell you, <clears throat> that line is as true today as it was when it was written. This gospel is bearing fruit. God is at work. And I don't want to be a person, and I don't want to be a part of a church that just reads about his power and just hears about his power. I want to see it. I want to experience that God is at work. The question, the simple question for all of us this morning is, are we ready? And what does it look like to be ready? And so that's the question I want you to wrestle with. Are you prepared for what God has in store for you? Is your heart ready? And what does that look like? Well, Jonah serves as a wonderful guide. And so if you go back up to verse 8, there are several things I want to point out that, that reveal what a ready heart looks like. Here's number one. A ready heart knows what really matters. Right? In verse 8, he says, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from the love God has for them. Right? And we 
get a chance to venture back into this discussion on idolatry, which is one that we went into great lengths to in April, right? It's this idea of clinging to, a word that means to give care or concern over, to pay great attention to, right? If you're clinging to these idols, then, then you see this track towards worthlessness. And so let's talk about these two fundamental principles of idolatry that we see in the scriptures, right? Two very common things about idolatry in the Old Testament. Number one, we reflect the gods that we worship. Okay, so in the old, ancient times, if you worshiped Baal, you were gonna reflect the characteristics of Baal. If you worship Yahweh, you reflect, the, you reflect the characteristics of Yahweh. That is true for us today. You worship money, your life is gonna reflect greed, materialism, luxury. Right, you worship comfort, you spend all this time and energy trying to curate a perfect life just to protect your own securities, you're gonna reflect that sort of idolatry. You worship image. Spend all this time and energy in terms of what you look like and what people think of you, the clothes that you wear and the, the status that you carry. You're going to reflect that. You worship indulgences, any sort of addiction, any sort of pleasure, and your life is going to reflect that sort of worship. We, as creatures, reflect the gods that we worship, and we were made to reflect his image, nothing else. The second principle of idolatry that we see in the scriptures is not only do we reflect the image of that which we worship, but false gods, all of them, lead to destruction. Every single one of them, it's, it's worthless, right? As we talked about in 2 Kings, they worshiped worthless idols and they themselves became worthless. It robs us of who we're supposed to be. It destroys us. It may feel good in a moment, but as the scriptures say, there is a way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to death. The only way is to worship him, right? So, so a ready heart understands what really matters and avoids these idols because the consequence of idolatry is that we turn away from God's love. Now that word turn away is more than just I'm looking another direction. It's more than just I'm pretending like something's not there. That word means to reject, to abandon, a greater image would be like we went and picked up God's love, looked at it, inspected it, set it down, and said, I don't need it, I don't want it, and rejected it. Right? It's a complete rejection of who he is. It's turning our back on him. That's the consequence of us walking away from God's love. Right? This is the problem of idolatry. Here's the point. A ready heart never chooses the world over God's love. A ready heart always knows what really matters. That's the first characteristic. Now the second that we see as Jonah kind of transitions through this prayer is that with uh, shouts of grateful praise that tells us a ready heart is one that is joyful, one that is thankful, one that is, is grateful. Now I think in our culture we're pretty decent at being thankful at least once a year, especially when it involves turkey, right? We're really good at that time of year, but beyond that, I wonder sometimes, right? I wonder if we truly understand what does it mean to be joyful and to have a gratitude when we follow this gospel, right? It's this posture, it's this position. There's a big difference between willing to follow God and being joyful as we follow God. Think of it this way. When I was in college, um, I remember wanting to be a missionary and wanting to get married. And I was smart enough to know, even at that young age, those two things may be difficult to pull off. Right? Because I just knew there's not a lot of young college girls that, that desire that type of life. Oh, 
leave my family and move to Africa? Sure, can't wait. You know, like I just didn't expect to find a lot of that. And so I was prepared for that. But in, in one of the relationships that I had, one girl that I dated before I met Jennifer, we had this conversation about missions. And, and I talked about whether or not that was something she wanted to do. And she looked at me after thinking about it for a while. And she goes, yeah, I'd be willing. And I appreciated the honesty. And I appreciated the willingness. Wasn't at all what I wanted. I didn't want somebody willing to do it. I wanted somebody joyfully passionate to do it. I was so grateful that I found that in my wife. And there's a big difference. So many of us, we respond to this gospel and we say, okay, well, I'm willing to do what God asks. And we lose the sense of joy and gratitude that we get to be part of his plan. We forget that joy is one of the chief characteristics of a believer and of the church. And unfortunately now, we live in a culture that looks at us and they don't see joy, they see negativity, right? They, they see all the bad things. We're known more for what we're against than what we're for. And so we've lost this sense of joy. Now, a good way to, to bring this to light is kind of a parody that we've seen emerge in culture, which to me it's somewhat comical, but it does build on this idea that churchgoers just kind of have this kind of negative attitude. And, and it's revealed in this online persona on Twitter known as the church curmudgeon. I don't know if any of you follow him. It's hilarious, and I love it. Um, but it builds on the idea of this kind of like get-off-my-lawn attitude, you know, that, that we sometimes exhibit. So just to, to illustrate the point, I found one or two of them that I thought was pretty good. And so you'll see these little updates on the church curmudgeon's account. So for example, here's one of the updates. Pastors and soccer fans are the only people who think that something with three points in an hour is exciting. Duly noted. Second one, question, how many Baptists does it take to change a light bulb in the sanctuary? Answer, they can't. That would involve raising their hands in church, right? So, so you see, we're all having fun, right? It's all good fun. And so, so you see the mentality, right? It's just kind of that negative attitude, and it, but it is indicative of the fact that a lot of times we've lost a sense of joy and people don't see it, right? A ready heart is always joyful. We have been entrusted with the greatest message the world has ever known. And it is a privilege for us to carry it and reveal it. It should give us joy no matter what storm, no matter what task he calls us to. A ready heart is joyful. A ready heart is willing to sacrifice, right? With shouts of grateful praise, I will sacrifice to you, right? We need to remember that following Jesus is costly. And this is the paradox of the gospel, right? That it will cost us a great deal and yet it gives us great joy. And a lot of times we feel like those two things can't happen, right? And so we cling to our own desires, we cling to our own ambitions, but, but what the gospel calls us to is to take up our cross and follow him, which means lay down your desires. Be willing to sacrifice, right? This is something that we must do on, on regular occurrences, right? That we must be willing to sacrifice not just a few days a week or just 15 minutes of prayer, but we must be willing to sacrifice all dreams, all plans, all ambitions, all comfort, all security for the sake of his kingdom. Right? It's a call to sacrifice. And so a question that each of us needs to ask ourselves today is a litmus test to whether or not our hearts are truly prepared and ready is what are you willing to sacrifice? What is God asking you to sacrifice? What are those things we're, we're clinging to? What are those things that we're giving great care and concern to that we just don't want to let go? May we never be those that stand before our king 
and have to give an explanation as to why we clung so tightly to this world. Right? If we need to loosen our grip on certain plans, a certain career, a certain relationship, a certain idea of being married, a certain idea of family, men, let it go. Right? A ready heart is always willing to sacrifice. A ready heart is always willing to commit. Right? He not only says that I will sacrifice to you, he says what I have vowed, I will make good. I love that phrase. Obviously, a vow is a promise, right? And so he, he makes a promise and assurance with his, with his lips. He makes a, a covenant, some sort of declaration with his words. But then that phrase, I will make good, literally means to complete. I will see it through. Now, we, we struggle with commitment as well, don't we? We're good at making commitments, especially in, in, a, in a biblical setting or a spiritual setting, uh, with lip service. Right? We're good in worship services and perhaps in small groups and with friends, but do we actually see it through? The commitments that we make on Sunday or on Wednesday, how do they look on Thursday and Saturday? Right? How, how are we doing with actually walking through the whole process and seeing it through? See, I think part of the challenge is that in our culture, we exalt freedom. We exalt choice. We exalt autonomy. And so we are free to do whatever we want. And so we're going to pursue those things. And the minute it's inconvenient for us, okay, I'm going to do something else. Because I have the freedom to do so. And it challenges our sense of loyalty. It challenges our sense of commitment. So Jonah says, well, what I have vowed, I'm going to see it through. Love that. So another question for us this morning, another litmus test to determine whether or not our hearts are ready. What is God asking you to commit to? Now, again, we're, we're good at maybe committing to the general concept, right? That there's this Jesus who died for our sins and wants to offer us eternal life. That is the heart of the message. And we'll say, yeah, I believe in that. But I'm not talking about just the general concept. I'm saying you specifically. What is he asking you to commit to? And if you can't answer that question, then maybe that's an insight to the sort of prayers you should be praying. How do you want to use it? I'm ready, Lord. Ready to commit. Ready to see it through. What is, what is he asking you to commit to? Some of you, it needs to be to be greater in, in leadership. Some of you need to commit towards servanthood. We need to commit towards fostering or adoption. Commit towards injustices. Commit to, to sharing the gospel. Commit to, to forgiveness and reconciliation. What do you need to commit to? And not just start and stop, but see it through. That's what a ready heart does. A ready heart is willing to commit. And then the last one we see in verse 9, I will say salvation belongs to the Lord. A ready heart always proclaims salvation. I love verse 9. Think about the first word that we saw in chapter 1, right? What was the call to Jonah? Rise up, go, and preach. Rise up, get up, go, proclaim, say. And Jonah resisted that idea. He ran away from that idea. And now through all that God has done, pursuing him in his rebellion, he reaches this moment. He says, I will say salvation belongs to the Lord. He is no longer afraid to proclaim what God has done. Now, again, we talk about salvation, and, and even the word is Yeshua, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's the name Jesus, so, like, you can't help but, but point to Jesus as being the one avenue of salvation. It's the only place that we should look. But, but, again, where we limit our understanding of salvation is we reduce it to soul conversion. 
right? We reduce it to this, this prayer that we pray or a moment when we walk down an aisle or a decision to be baptized, which are all incredibly significant. I don't want to minimize them, but salvation in the scriptures is so much more than saving your soul. In the Old Testament in particular, it's a literal and physical salvation. Jonah nearly drowned. He was swallowed by a fish. He was rebellious, and he is saying, I was saved from death itself by the Lord. He points to an actual salvation. And so you and I, when we go through these storms, we need to long for more than just a conversion of our soul, but to actually be set free. So yes, when he sends storms, we may have to endure them for a couple of days, weeks, months, years. Yes, maybe even to the point of the end of our lives. But we never lose sight of the fact that God will ultimately be the one who saves us. A ready heart is always proclaiming salvation. Right, so that, that's the summary you want to know if we're ready, you want to know if we're ready to respond, to be fully prepared for what God has, to be in a fit condition, to be used immediately for his purposes? Well, a ready heart knows what really matters. A ready heart is joyful. A ready heart is able to sacrifice, is committed, and proclaim salvation. That's what we aspire to. Now, I want to, I want to wrap us up by bringing this into the New Testament for a moment. And I want, to, I want to show you what a ready heart looks like on the other side of the cross, Right after we've seen Jesus fulfill his grace, his mercy, and his purposes, and see how his followers respond. You don't need to turn there. I'm just going to paraphrase it for you, but it comes from Acts chapter 5, which is a remarkable story. And it's in the, the midst, it's in the, the beginning uh, birthing of the church where you're seeing this massive conversion, right? Hundreds and thousands coming to the faith day after day. You see this movement of God taking place. You see his power truly being unleashed to the point that people are bringing the sick, they're bringing the lame, they're bringing the crippled out onto the streets just hoping that Peter's shadow might fall on him. Think of that. Think of that, that type of power. That's what's going on. And so the religious leaders, right, the chief priests, well, they're jealous and they want to stop it. They want to alter it. And so they round up the apostles and they throw them in prison, right, thinking that that will stop everything. And in the midst of them being in prison, an angel appears to these apostles and says, go to the temple courts and tell everyone about this new life. And so they go, right? They, they understand this, this proclamation. It's almost just like Jonah's, go and tell. Such a simple message that we see over and over in the scriptures that's for you and me, go and tell. It was offered to the apostles through that angel. And so they miraculously were taken out of the prison and put back into the temple courts. So the chief priests come, and they come back to the cells, and they, they see that the cell doors are locked, and the guards are in place, and they open them up, and nobody's there. And so floored by this miracle, trying to figure out what's happened, people come rushing in and say, well, they're in the temple courts. They're still preaching. And so the chief priests come out there, and they're furious, and they say, why are you still preaching in this name that we told you not to use and condemning us of this man's blood? And the disciples, the apostles respond and they say, we must obey God, not human beings. Right? It's a heart that knows what really matters. And with that response, those that imprisoned them were furious and they were outraged and they had this plot to kill them. Right? Let's, let's kill them. Well, there was a debate 
that ensued. And, and one of the leaders there, who was very wise, began to spoke up, speak up and said, now hold on a second. We've had other people rise up and get a following. We've had other people come and make some sort of a momentum amongst the people. But every time when that person died, their followers scattered. And so if these, if these men are of the same fold, then it's going to have a similar result. We don't need to worry about it. it it'll scatter eventually. But if these men are from God, you're going to find yourself not just fighting men, but fighting God himself. So it persuaded the, the chief priests and the elders to not kill them. So instead, they decided to have them flogged and silence them. I want you to let that sink in for a moment. Okay, if you don't know what flogging is, that means to take a whip and to, to scorch it over their back over and over again until the flesh begins to rip off. That was their, their penalty. Right, this was a level of persecution that is hard for us to truly fathom. They were thrown in prison, threatened to be executed, and ultimately whipped and beaten and silenced. So if that were you, how would you respond? Would you be willing to, to maintain the proper perspective? Would you be willing to to find joy in the midst of that, be willing to sacrifice and to see it through? Or would that be enough to cause you to say, you know what, I think I'll take a break for a while. Would you keep speaking what God had asked you to speak? How would you respond? Well, their answer is one of my favorites. Acts chapter five. The apostles, after being beaten, left the Sanhedrin rejoicing rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. What an amazing verse of inspiration. These are hearts that were prepared, fully equipped, to use for God's plan and purposes. These were hearts that understood what really mattered, understanding to be joyful even when they had to suffer for the disgrace of the name, understanding that it would mean sacrificing, yes, maybe even their lives, and yet they saw it through. They committed day after day. They never stopped. And what did they commit themselves to? Proclaiming and teaching that Jesus is the Messiah. Salvation was on their lips. That's the picture of a ready heart. And so here's how I want to leave us. Hear me. I believe God is at work, not just around this world, here, in this room, in this church. I can sense it. God is doing something. You can feel it boiling beneath the surface. This movement, this power being unleashed in our lives, in this church, this community, in this world. He is at work. There's just one question we have to answer. Are you ready? Let's pray. Father, with great anticipation and expectation, we look to you to lead us and to guide us and for us to see your mighty power unleashed in a movement erupt in our midst. 
Father, we long to be used by you. Father, we admit that so many times we run our own way in our own rebellion, in our own hearts, in our own sin. And Father, we aren't ready the way that you desire us to be ready. We're grateful that you use us regardless, but Father, may we be a church, may we be a people that is ready for you. Father, that we would be fully equipped, that we would be in fit condition to be used immediately for your cause and for your kingdom. Father, if there's anything within any of us today that gets in the way from that, that holds us back to be used or that holds us back from having the the ready heart that you desire, Father, I pray that we would confess it and we would surrender it to you today. Father, that you would equip us with your spirit, Father, that we could feel your power erupt within this church and it would be something that spills over into the campus across the street and the businesses and the neighborhoods around this community and by extension, the world. Father, things that go beyond our explanation, things that go beyond our abilities, but only allow us to point to you and may we see it because you found us ready. You found us prepared. So Father, that's what we desire. Help us to know what is, what is important. Give us joy. Let us be willing to sacrifice and commit day after day house to house, may we never stop teaching and proclaiming the good news of Jesus, the Messiah. He is our Savior. It's in his precious name that we pray these things. Amen. Amen.